Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the twice-weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thanks so much for tuning in. And as ever, we've got a lot to cram in during our time together. A couple of notices. Then, if it's okay with you, I will reflect and contextualise. This is sort of a sequel to the podcast earlier this week about nothing bloody working uh, in Britain uh, with the news about Thames Water. By the time you hear this, or by the time some of you hear this, uh, there could have been uh, many more developments. Podcasts are at the moment functioning with very fast-moving stories. But with Thames Water, as I record, on the verge of going completely bust and talk of temporary state ownership and so on amidst the squalor of uh, the sewage being poured into the seas and rivers of Britain. But we all know the horrors of it. I want to contextualise it because it shines so much light on British politics, the way certain eras are perceived wrongly, um, uh, and I speak having followed water privatisation from the beginning um, after the 87 election, which I'll talk about, if that's OK, with all of you. Uh, then time for a couple of questions. This is a kind of bonus one. I haven't got an interview this week for various reasons, um, uh, mainly because I wanted to do Nothing Works water privatisation this time. Um, so, yeah, a couple of notices. Da -da -da -da, the last live rock and roll politics before uh, Edinburgh is uh, July the 11th at the Hitchin Festival at 7.30. As many of you who live around there or close to there, it would be great. Uh, we will be delving deep that night with the by-elections building, building, looming, a chance to reflect on um, did Sunak ever have a chance to do what John Major did in 1990 and give the impression that the Tories had changed? So in 1992, as Neil Kinnock reflected later, voters thought there had been an election and a change of government. Uh, did he have that chance and did he blow it? Did he never have that chance? Anyway, that that's, could be well one of the things live at the Hitchin Festival on Tuesday. And then, of course, from Sunday, August the 13th, uh, live every day at the Edinburgh Festival. And tickets are available at the Fringe site and in a link uh, which will appear on the blurb to this podcast. Uh, so a lot going on. Now, water privatisation and uh, what it tells us more widely about British politics. It should be of no great surprise that these water companies are in the mess they are in and that they have failed to deliver the very basics of uh, public service and probably in their own minds never saw it as a public service in that post-privatisation era. It's really interesting looking back after 1987, I was a correspondent of the BBC, a kind of environment BBC uh, correspondent, uh, which kept was a really busy brief. And what happened after the 87 election was utterly reckless. So the Tory manifesto in 1987... Uh, first of all, is a really interesting document. You should have a look at it. This is the first thing the chaos of water now tells us about British politics. There's a great focus, understandably, 
when trying to make sense of the 1980s in terms of manifestos of the Labour manifesto in 1983. You know, ah, the longest suicide note in history, as Gerald Kaufman called that manifesto. And there is a focus on it because Labour was slaughtered, although Labour was slaughtered in 1983 for reasons that weren't entirely connected to the manifesto. The manifesto was a symptom of a wider malaise. But uh, the 1987 Tory manifesto, um, of course, is not demonised in the same way because it was the manifesto of a massive landslide victory for Margaret Thatcher. But it was a reckless document. It was a document of policies that were way to the right of the One Nation Toryism of, say, Macmillan, uh, Macleod, or whatever. Um, and yet it was never really portrayed in that light. It was seen as uh, the sensible choice, in inverted commas, in that election. But that document, the 1987 Manifesto, did not outline vaguely further privatisation plans. It contained the proposal for the poll tax, uh, which was framed by Thatcher as the uh, flagship of her third term. And uh, look through it. There are a whole range of reckless proposals that hadn't been clearly thought through. And yet it is now seen really as the peak of Thatcherism, who, because of the chaos of trust, Johnson, Sunak, Cameron, and so on, may, uh, she now is seen as a kind of considered titan. She was impulsive. She had kind of prejudices rather than a deeply thought through ideology and detailed, clearly worked through policies arising from them. And what happened after 87 highlights this vividly. I think will now become to be seen. I think people will dare to look back because in that period, the orthodoxy right up to very recently was the Thatcherite Nigel Lawson privatization program was an unqualified success. That was the orthodoxy. On the ground, those who studied what happened knew it was at best far more nuanced than that. Uh, but that's the way it was kind of perceived and reported in the media uh, and beyond. So she gets back in in 1987 at her most powerful, the great Tory election winner. And it was electorally a triumph, a big landslide after Neil Kinnock had spent four years trying to make Labour electable. She still swept the board. And as a result, she could do what she wanted and had every intention of doing what she wanted. She, of course, appointed a cabinet that was 10,000 times more formidable than Johnson's cabinets uh, from July 2019, and especially after he won in December 2019, a big election victory. Uh, but there was one similarity between the two of them, a sense that they were the key to everything. While Johnson looked like an election winner, he could do what he wanted and did what he wanted. And she was the same. And so in terms of her key passions, her key reforming passions after that 87 election, 
uh, virtually all of them were given to her favourite cabinet minister, who was Nicholas Ridley, uh, who was Environment Secretary. And uh, Ridley was wholly unsuited for the task. He was privately a rather charming uh, figure. He was a chain smoker, um, but engaged very politely with people. Uh, He was seen as incredibly waspish and was quite unpopular as a public figure, but privately he was like that. But Thatcher adored him because she saw him uh, with, with <laughs> probably with justification as ideologically at one with her, with her kind of, as I say, imprecise ideological impulses. Uh, but he wasn't a great policy person, Ridley. Uh, he famously uh, was uh, one of those uh, ministers who was relaxed about reducing the forces around the Falklands uh, in the build-up to the Falklands invasion, which was a factor in allowing the Argentinian junta to conclude the British aren't interested in any more, will invade. There were reasons why that Falklands war happened. Um, And so there he was, Ridley, in charge of all her key reforms of spectacular ambition, but not particularly thought through, and she wanted them done quickly. So Ridley was in charge of implementing the poll tax. For younger listeners, this was a tax to replace the then rate system, which was the local authority tax, uh, and it was going to be a flat rate for everyone. Whatever their income, they would pay the same. And uh, water privatisation was also one of uh, uh, part of Ridley's brief. So, incidentally, was housing. He and Thatcher planned what Ridley called a housing revolution, which was all about changing ownership from the public to the private. Um, it wasn't about building houses. It was about ownership. It was a revolution in housing without any additional housing. But these were three massive briefs. In previous eras, uh, separate cabinet ministers would have been responsible for each. You know, there used to be a cabinet minister for housing. Uh, A a reform on the scale of the poll tax demanded an undivided attention of a cabinet minister, and water privatisation was a massive project. He was doing all three, and all three very quickly. And in different ways, they were all a disaster. But the recognition of the disaster was slower in some cases. So the poll tax became uh, famously chaotic to the point where it was a key factor in the fall of Thatcher. And John Major, when he took over, scrapped it. The housing revolution just didn't happen. Uh, There were no new houses. The crisis in availability of affordable housing was uh, intensifying, uh, but the media wasn't interested at that point. They are now because it's reached such a scale of emergency. Um, But they weren't then. It was just all, wasn't it brilliant, the sale of council houses and Britain's new property-owning democracy. The consequences were unexplored. So it didn't matter politically. It mattered hugely in other ways that Ridley's housing revolution never really happened. 
But water was rushed through like many of the other privatizations. And um, even though critics could see the flaws, basically replacing state monopolies with private monopolies, uh, it was all sold off cheaply. They would dream deals for those who were taking them over. It raised a bit of money for the government, which they uh, blew, um, but they needed money. Uh, that was the initial appeal, by the way, of privatisation for Margaret Thatcher. The selling off gave the government some money. Um, you know, she wanted to cut taxes and all the rest of it. How was she going to raise money? Well, let's privatise. She got money from North Sea Oil as well, and they blew that. The idea that that was a fiscally responsible government is one of the great myths. Anyway, the other interesting factor was uh, that although... Uh, those One Nation Tories were uneasy about all these propositions, including the water privatisation. Uh, famously, in the mid-80s, Harold Macmillan said, why are we selling off the family silver? And making the point that these things were being flogged off cheaply um, and making it almost impossible to get them back again. But Labour in the 87 election was wary of moving into any of this terrain. They were scared of raising the poll tax, even though in the end, say, it helped to bring Thatcher down, uh, because they were having so many problems with some of their local authorities, and it was all about the loony left councils. They didn't want to get into it, local government. And privatisation at the time was seen as a great triumph. Uh, you know, with the, with the media hailing all these things. Uh, and British gas had been privatised. And initially, in inverted commas, ordinary voters bought shares. They, not many and not for very long. And there was a very populist campaign about this selling off of British gas, tell Sid and all the rest of it. But there was a view out there that this was actually giving Britain's assets to the people. Uh, or making them available to the people, and Labour couldn't find a kind of counter-argument. So the chaos of um, replacing state monopolies with private monopolies, in this case, where there was competition, it was okay. You know, it, it kind of worked. Um, but where you just replace one monopoly with another monopoly, dependent on regulation, it was a nightmare from day one. But it's only recently, partly because when Britain was still in the EU, there was really strict regulation about dumping sewage in the sea. Um, but that was lifted and, off, and, and, and that has intensified the problem. Uh, but there is the usual British problem, no investment. And in this private monopoly, no motive to uh, see quality water as a public service. Uh, in fairness, these private companies, well, you know, they had to deliver for their shareholders. It was, it was bringing in a culture uh, where that was the priority and bonuses for the chief execs and all the rest of it. But it didn't bring in any innovative kind of creative energy to the sector because there was no motive. They had no competition. And critics realised that from day one, including some of the One Nation Tories looking on in Ilat. But such was the consensus in the British media and um, 
the timidity of Labour which intensified, even as it became clearer that some of these privatisations weren't working. That by 1997, Thatcher, Nicholas Ridley and others, Nigel Lawson, had won the argument on the political stage. Uh, New Labour never challenged the ideological victory on ownership. Indeed, Blair and Brown went into the 97 election proposing a further privatisation of air traffic control to show their commitment to this ideological crusade. And Labour now, they will go big on the collapse of Thames Water. Uh, And of course, they have gone big on complaining and protesting about the sewage. But there is no attempt to make a wider point. Uh, And and there is a way of doing it. And it's not to say we will renationalise immediately because it is expensive. That's the mistake that... uh, Corbyn and McDonnell made that um, right away they were going to renationalise everything. But if you make the argument that they were all given away cheaply, recklessly, you then have to accept getting them back is very, very difficult and expensive. You know, it's like selling a house cheaply and then you say, oh, I, want to, I think I want to move back into that area. And you find it's astronomically expensive and you've made a big mistake. So I think in some cases you have to look at far more robust forms of regulation. But you explain why you have reached that, that the whole thing was a reckless venture in the first place by the Thatcher government, um, never addressed since by the Tory governments. And now such is the state of crisis and such is the cost of buying it back Here is an alternative route for now. But it might be even that that more tentative route is um, overtaken by events and the state just has to step in. But it is a real vivid example of utterly short-sighted ideological impulsiveness, uh, a consensus forming in the British media, a timid Labour Party unable to frame an argument to show why it has been such a catastrophe. And once you've explained why, you then have the space to put an alternative case. But when Keir Starmer uh, is asked about uh, privatisations, he just says, oh, I'm pragmatic about this. Well, maybe, but explain why you are taking the position you are. Uh, why this innovation of uh, a publicly owned energy company is a good thing. Why the catastrophe of rail privatisation means that public ownership becomes a possibility and a necessity. Why you can't afford immediately, necessarily, although this government might be forced to do it, uh, to, to bring these disastrous private monopolies back into a robust, modern publicly owned uh, structure. But that could well be the end game following the most robust new regulatory structure. The water regulator sounds like a spokesperson for these companies uh, when interviewed. Uh, It's a tale of our times. It's about how the past is perceived, how the 1980s are seen wrongly in many ways. 
And then the failure of others to frame arguments about why it was so reckless and irresponsible. Um, and I'm afraid because, as I said earlier, from 2010 to now, the Tories have had some of the weakest prime ministers in their history, and in Johnson and Trust, the two weakest. The Thatcher era, she is now portrayed as this great forensic titan. Well, post-87 was a period of recklessness, to the point, of course, she fell. They had to get rid of her uh, in the end, in 1990. Um, but somehow or other, uh, the orthodoxy that all the privatizations were a success remained in place. It's part of this problem with people considering themselves to be on the centre ground, you know, uh, this mythological place much talked about at the moment, uh, where people say, well, you know, I'm not bothered about ownership either way, I just want good public services. But what is the route to good public services when you're dealing with essential provision and inevitable monopolies? You can't create competition in water. To give one example of several. Anyway, uh, there we are. Let's see how that develops. Uh, you know, I was talking on Monday about the podcast and dealing with the uh, Putin attempted coup story. Um, uh, there are many fast moving stories at the moment as the consequences of this long period of Tory rule are played out whilst they are still there. Yeah. Sunak needs the skills of a political titan and he he hasn't he hasn't got them uh, just a, a couple of questions uh because we'll do more early next week when we get together to make sense of things because we've been talking, this is the sequel, Nothing Works in Britain. And it could be, by the way, a box set, many more to come. But anyway, Ian Crossley writes, oh, I'm reading this because of Ian's first sentence. Uh, your your podcast, uh, by far the best in a competitive lineup. I uh, haven't missed a show since episode one. Oh, thank you, Ian. I think we'll end there. Um, no, anyway, uh, Ian is in Switzerland. And um, he was listening to uh you know the part one of nothing bloody works in britain and he took a photo of a swiss train you know because i was talking about the trains earlier this week you know cornwall to london on a packed saturday and gwr another private company uh getting away with murder um just halved the capacity of the train without telling anyone and all reservations scrapped chaos sordid chaos for five and a half six hours anyway ian's taken a picture of a swiss train during a short trip where clearly the kids need to be entertained take a look i suspect even you may be lost for words um, yeah, he said, I took the, what it is, it's a photo of, um, a train in Switzerland and, uh, it's got a sort of child play area in the train, uh, including a slide for kids to go up and down on, um, in one of the carriages. I imagine that in Britain's 
privatised monopoly-type trains where the only thought is how do we cram in as many passengers as possible to maximise the income from fares. So let's make the bike provision a, a tiny little place where it's almost impossible to put the bikes in. And they wouldn't even contemplate this. It's why Britain accepts the lowest possible provision of public services passively is a question I think we need to explore uh, in the cooperative. Uh, because when they go abroad, they all say, oh, yeah, it's pretty good here. Um, and then come back to this and we just get on with it. Um, so, yeah, it, I, I'm amazed by it. Um, he said, I took the picture several weeks ago and have been waiting for the right moment. This really is the children's carriage. It's in standard class and shows public services of the highest class. Yeah, well... Um, yeah, absolutely. Thank you for showing us what others can experience. Um, and we've got to get to this place. Uh, the aim of the next Labour government should be the highest, best public services in uh, in Europe. And they should be saying people should come and look at our public services instead of that humiliating way in which uh, various people, politicians, go to other places to look at provision. Um, and I asked Christian Walmart about where the best train services are. Uh, and he says, you know, it's kind of uh, Switzerland, Spain, Japan. So let's get the people who run those over here and get them to sort ours out. Um, in that kind of context, Ollie Martin wonders whether Labour might be on the cusp once again of misreading the mood of the electorate. Uh, and the appetite for change, fluffing once again, uh, once in a generation opportunity to shift the political spectrum in an enlightened, dare I say, more European direction. Ollie says, I'm writing, currently sat at the Milton Keynes station waiting for a train that appears to have mastered time travel. Well, back in time anyway. Uh, one amongst many this evening not running. Uh, yeah, nothing bloody works in the UK 2023. It, it Yeah. Uh, everywhere I go, people are saying this. Uh, but onto the wider point. I mean, Labour always face this dilemma about how to win from opposition, and they rarely answer it successfully. Uh, remember, only Harold Wilson in 64 and Blair in 97 have won from opposition. Attlee in 45 was Deputy Prime Minister when that election was called. Uh, so it is a massive set of dilemmas and challenges for any Labour leader. It's an almost impossible job. But I think the appetite of change is such that, for example, over things like the failure of some privatisations, you really spell it out and land it at the door of a Tory ideology, which is outdated and which had been disowned by the sensible wing of that party at the time. Um, and, and then you do have a bit of space to say public services are going to be revived. Now, in terms of tax and spend, it's a real problem for Labour. And I completely sympathise with Rachel Reeves, the Shadow Chancellor, because she knows every penny uh, Labour pledges, uh, while needed and welcome in reality, will be portrayed as a threat uh, by the British media. Uh, of reckless spending, tax bombshells, and the the, the so-called spin doctors, those who deal with the media from King Keir Starmer's office. They hang around with journalists at the Times and kind of 
brief them on as a noticeable, and they all sit together agreeing that Labour cannot pledge to spend a penny, a penny, and then a consensus forms that that has got to be the case. And so it's really difficult. Um, uh, but the, the hunger for change is manifesting itself at the moment in this deepening anti-Tory mood, which, as I said earlier this week, is deeper than the build-up to 1997, which I can remember vividly. Um, and that means it's accompanied by a hunger for change. Now, they're going to have to, in the end, the voters, uh, coalesce around the only alternative government, which is a Labour government. Uh, but they will want to do so, I think, uh, sensing that change is coming. Um, and and by the way, what Labour says now in opposition will determine what they can do in government. Uh, words matter now. So they're busy briefing what they're not going to do. So they won't be able to do it in government. So what are they going to be able to do in government given this hunger for change? Part of the dilemma that they need to work out. On other matters, Cal Gooding, who's who mentions he's age 23, I, I mentioned his age from Manchester, uh, Cal says, I think many would be happy to see the return of the long-form interview, as discussed in your recent podcast with Rob Burley, who used to edit the Andrew Marr Show and other things. What I'd like to know is who, either currently at the Beeb or not, would you like to see conduct these interviews? He, uh, Ross Atkins is great. Yeah, I agree, Ross is great, uh, Cal. Um, I read, read that out because of your age, Cal, as well as the uh, pertinent question, uh, because the BBC are obsessed about getting people like you to watch, and they get it all wrong. You know, the, in their cocooned world, these army of BBC managers sit there and talk about the need to get younger audiences, and they think they get it by patronising them in, in news and current affairs with kind of really short interviews interspersed. If you look at the Laura Coonsberg programme with a kind of interview with a celebrity or whatever, they oh, yeah, yeah, young people will love this. Um and then some say, I don't know, oh, yeah, let's, let's if we get a 20-year-old to present it, that will be great. That will get all these young people. Of course, it's not that. You are typical of many. I get loads of emails from younger people. And when I do the live shows, there are lots of younger people there as well, aching for uh, politics to be presented for what it is, which is partly an epic drama of many layers. Uh, topping Shakespeare at times, and one that touches everyone's lives in all kinds of different ways. And yeah, uh, in terms of who, who should do it, I, I can't think of anyone off the top of my head, but what it needs is uh, depth, context, uh, a fascination of the dilemmas faced by politicians. Um, and then you are off and... Um, uh, I don't even think, you know, some of the titans of the past, like Brian Warden, are necessarily the right model. Uh, but anyway, uh, keep on uh, following the twists and turns, Cal. Okay, look, I'm going to uh, end it there. As I say, this was um, a, a sequel, really, on nothing working in Britain because of the collapse of Thames Water um, amidst uh, the collapse. Of, we, we, with this island, we can't swim in this water it's just oh anyway uh as i said my calm 
tone and demeanour is an act. I'm furious, as I know many of you are, uh, calmly. Um, so let's get together again early next week uh, where there will be many twists and turns which we need to make sense of. Uh, and I'll read out some more questions as well. They're coming in at a rate of knots. What a ridiculous metaphor. And in the meantime, have a great time. Thanks for listening. Uh, I say, we need to get together again pretty urgently and pretty quickly, which we will. Thank you. Bye. <laughs>